Hey everyone, it's Andrew. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. If you do, and I would ask for a small favor, if you could go to iTunes and give me a rating, that goes a long way. Additionally, if there are any subjects or topics that you are interested in me covering, you can go to my website, apcardiology.com, and there's a feedback section, and you can drop me a line there. A couple of you have done so, and that's been very kind. And lastly, tell your friends or family or your coworkers or whoever about the podcast and help spread the word. I'd really appreciate it. Now, for today's episode, if you've ever taken care of someone with pulmonary hypertension, you know just how sick those patients can be, and they can be very tough to manage. Um, Washington University is a bit of a referral center for these patients, and we have a large center uh, for pulmonary hypertension the director of which is Morali Chakanala. Uh, Dr. Chakanala, he's well-known uh, in the national scene. He writes a lot about pulmonary hypertension. He has a large clinic of these patients. He's very involved. You know, he's super smart, um, does a lot, but also just has a, a really good bedside manner. So he's a really good model physician in that way. He was kind enough to sit down with me and talk at length about pulmonary hypertension. So we review a lot of the stuff about, like, how to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, the different groupings of pulmonary hypertension, and then some of the therapeutics and what you do in the decompensated patient. Um, he's a really good teacher, and I think there's a lot of useful pearls uh, from this episode, so I hope you enjoy it. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Maybe first, let's start with you uh, saying your name and your title, and then uh, I'll describe that case that I encountered. I'm Morali Chakanala. I'm a member of the pulmonary division at Washington University. I'm a, a professor of medicine, and I direct our pulmonary hypertension care center. Cool. Yeah, thank you for meeting with me today. The So this was actually a few months ago, started with a patient case. I was rotating through the cardiothoracic ICU as a of an elective, and we had a gentleman come up uh, from the OR with a after mitral valve repair uh, for mitral stenosis, rheumatic mitral stenosis. Past medical history also included uh, lupus, which is on low-dose prednisone. He had some history of cirrhosis from alcohol and a DVT, but no PE. And so he came up with a swollen GANS catheter in place, and his pressures, were, they were 134 over 47, which was which is huge. Yeah. And so uh, one of my first questions when I was seeing him, you know, knowing he had multiple um, reasons to have pulmonary hypertension, primarily this mitral stenosis that had been repaired, but that just seemed so out of proportion to maybe what he would normally see or experience. And so for a patient like that that's complicated, what would be your approach for him? And then we'll kind of talk about the overall like groupings of pulmonary hypertension. Yeah, so, you know, what you're asking really is uh, how do you approach sort of severe pulmonary hypertension, like in this case, um, and and it really is uh, tricky, and it depends on the context by which you're coming across that patient. You know, when people come into you in the office with that kind of pulmonary hypertension, and, you know, they're not acutely ill, obviously, you know, they've been like this for a long time, um, and... Uh, uh, you know, you, you don't develop pulmonary hypertension like that out of the blue. It's something that takes a long time to develop those kind of pressures. So you have to really have the historical frame of reference of why or what led to where they are and what are the comorbidities or underlying causes. You know, the scenario you're describing of somebody who just had, you know, well, first off, they had had mitral valve disease for a long period of time, mm-hmm. and so they certainly could have developed pulmonary hypertension. But then you're catching them uh, fresh post-op, uh, presumably still intubated or uh, on a lot of vasoactive medicines, and you know the, the the context or the background or the setting that you're in would certainly influence. Uh, a lot of those pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in a lot of other diseases, it's really important to understand sort of the pace and the, the temporal quality of the case of how and when, how it developed over time. And then you alluded to a lot of comorbidities or underlying factors that could lead to pulmonary hypertension beyond the mitral valve disease. You know, they've had previous venothromboembolism 
or at least DVTs and, you know, how sure are you that they didn't have, you know, pulmonary emboli and mm. chronic thrombolic disease. Um, and you mentioned they have cirrhosis, so that puts them at risk as well too. So we certainly want to think about all of those things, but obviously at that moment where you're in the ICU taking care of somebody, you're really focused on the acute situation and how much of an impact that it's directly having on their blood pressure and uh, organ perfusion and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of just preliminary approach, but I always want to think about, you know, how long or, or, or how chronic is the hypertension, um, the, the pace with which it's presented and what are the relevant comorbidities that may cause it as we try to figure out what the true etiology or true diagnosis is. Okay. And maybe we should take a second and just kind of define what pulmonary hypertension is so that we don't start on the same page. So, you know, just like hypertension, meaning high blood pressure, we're now focusing on the arterial side of the vascular tree in the lung. So essentially the the vasculature, the blood vessels that are responsible for, you know, uh, transmitting blood from the right side of the heart to the lungs. And and remind everybody that's the deoxygenated blood that has to make it to the capillary level so that we can uh, uh, transport or pick up oxygen uh, that the lungs have respired in uh, and deliver it to the rest of the body. So when you're dealing with pulmonary hypertension, it's the pressure being elevated in those uh, vessels on the arterial side of the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many reasons for people to develop pulmonary hypertension. Just aging in itself will lead to a modest rise in the pressures, but not to the level of what we call pulmonary hypertension. And to define pulmonary hypertension, the uh, mean pulmonary artery pressure has to be at least 25 millimeters of mercury. Mm. So anytime you have that, then you're dealing with pulmonary hypertension. Um, but as you mentioned a few minutes ago, the different groupings and whatnot, you know, that is really the beginning. And, and, and I always tell people pulmonary hypertension isn't a diagnosis by itself. It's more of a, a, a physiologic finding, a condition, if you will. But the ultimate diagnosis has to be drilled down further to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so think of pH in five different groups. Uh, group one is pulmonary arterial hypertension. Uh, group two is classic left heart disease that leads to pulmonary hypertension, like your patient who had mitral valve disease, that would be mm-hmm. a big concern. Uh, group three is patients who have underlying parenchymal lung diseases, whether it be airways disease, interstitial lung disease, you name it, anything, sleep apnea, um, anything that can affect the lung parenchyma that can then ultimately affect gas exchange can also lead to pulmonary hypertension. Group four, is rare but very important, and that's chronic thromboembolic disease, mm-hmm. previous pulmonary emboli that failed to completely resolve and lead to um, diffuse remodeling of the vasculature that uh, ultimately causes pulmonary hypertension. And then group five is more of a, a miscellaneous category of a bunch of different diseases where either we don't quite know why they develop pH or there may be multiple reasons in one disease or in one patient uh, for them that pulmonary hypertension. Classic examples might be sarcoid, for instance, or patients who have chronic kidney disease on dialysis. These are patients where multiple things can be going on simultaneously to lead to pulmonary hypertension. But group one, which I quickly mentioned, is the one that probably we talk about the most because in some ways it's the most lethal disease, and mm-hmm. this is PAH, or pulmonary arterial hypertension, where it's really a problem at the level of the small arteries of the lungs. Uh, and it's in these tiny vessels that normally should offer very little resistance that became progressively narrowed and maybe even occluded because of vascular remodeling and some vasoconstriction. It's, um, th- it's a group of diseases that also are uh, interesting because they can come from a, a variety of other um, Mm-hmm. disciplines uh, like autoimmune diseases like scleroderma, uh, cirrhotic patients who develop portal hypertension, folks born with congenital heart defects that also uh, go on to involve uh, f- affect the pulmonary vasculature, 
drugs and toxins in the environment or, or uh, that are available like anorexigen compounds, certain chemotherapeutic agents, all of these entities act like the classic quintessential example, which is idiopathic pulmonary arterial hypertension mm-hmm. uh, and the heritable form of it as well. And in all these conditions, you can develop a severe vascular disease or what we call, uh, really a, a, an arteriopathy with the rest of the lung essentially being unremarkable or normal. Uh, and that's why it's a special group um, because you know there really isn't a significant heart disease that's causing the pH or a significant lung disease that's causing the pH. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, these are patients who can develop some of the most severe forms of pulmonary hypertension. And when you're in that group, your symptoms, your clinical presentation, your natural history is uh, pretty much uh, de- de- um, determined by the fate of your pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. I find it that uh, having cared for a few patients with pulmonary hypertension, I find that generally like folks with you know, left-sided heart failure or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, that their pulmonary hypertension is usually pretty mild. It's like talking mean pressures and like up in the 30s or like low 40s. At what point, I would once ask you, like, at what point is your threshold to then suggest, oh, even with these other comorbidities that they have, their pulmonary pressures are out of proportion to what I would expect. And maybe I should consider this uh, a coexisting group one pulmonary arterial hypertension in combination to those. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and I, you know, we wring our hands a lot at some of these patients because, you know, patients don't come to us like they're out of the textbook where they have one problem. Um, I mean, sometimes they do, but most often they don't. Mm -hmm. So, and I want to, before I answer you, I want to just say that our patients can easily have multiple things going on at the same time that it were more than one condition they have may produce pulmonary hypertension. And sometimes that can have an additive effect. Mm -hmm. For example, people who have chronic lung disease like COPD or interstitial lung disease, They can certainly develop pulmonary hypertension, uh, typically mild, like you were suggesting, and I'll give you some numbers in a minute. But in that patient, if they also have undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. you know, the two things together can lead to a more robust pulmonary Mm -hmm. hypertension because the driving factors that are causing the vascular changes, some of the remodeling and the hypertension is more aggravated because a COPD or who also has sleep apnea in all likelihood has worse gas exchange and lower oxygen levels and higher carbon dioxide levels at night when they sleep mm-hmm. as opposed to the COPD or without sleep apnea or the sleep apneic who doesn't have COPD. So you have to think that the added effect of some of these conditions can certainly make it worse. But in general, what I worry anytime I see a patient where the mean pulmonary artery pressure is above 40, um, so even sometimes 35, the mean now, mm-hmm. not the systolic. Mm-hmm. I think when you're getting up into that range, again, certainly above 40 um, and maybe even above 35, you're really talking about rare forms of pulmonary, I mean, rare examples of pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. Now, all that means to me, though, is that I really want to pay attention and do a thorough workup to see if I can identify what might be the cause. Sometimes it still winds up being these common comp conditions, but it's just snowball effect. They've got heart failure, preserved ejection fraction, untreated sleep apnea, and COPD, and they haven't been wearing oxygen because they don't like to wear it. You know, you still have to think about all those things, but I certainly, my ears perk up when I hear a mean PA pressure greater than 40, that I want to be sure I'm not missing something else. And lo and behold, you know, we've even, you know, I've been fooled thinking my on first blanche or first uh, look that, oh, this is probably just COPD and pulmonary hypertension. And we wind up finding out that, you know what? They have scleroderma. I mean, mm-hmm. until we did the digging, we didn't see it. Or they have chronic thromboembolic disease or they have a bad mitral valve or an aortic valve, you know. So I think it's really important that those patients, um, that we carefully look at them and thoroughly evaluate them with our standard workup for pulmonary hypertension anytime you have a mean PA pressure, certainly above 40. Okay. But, uh, and maybe just to 
rephrase what you'd also mentioned, but those common groups could also result in that degree of hypertension. Yeah. It's uh, maybe a matter of them being inadequately treated for many, many years. And then yeah. they've developed this remodeling and now their pressures are that high, even without, you know. Right. And there's a lot about the pulmonary biology, vascular biology. We still don't know. Mm. I mean, we've identified certain genes that can lead to heritable pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, we're still learning more, but it's possible that uh, maybe there are lesser pathways or more common pathways or polymorphisms in certain genes that may trigger a more robust pulmonary vascular response to a trigger that's quite common. Mm. You know, they have uh, HEFPAT, heart failure preserved ejection fraction, um, like many, like millions of people in our country, but they get a more severe form of pulmonary hypertension. And while we don't have proof yet of what those other pathways are, you still wonder, okay, why is this person in their 70s have such bad pH when we know they have all these issues and they have HEFPEF, but they also have this exaggerated pulmonary uh, hypertension. And, and one, a lot of us have speculated that maybe some of the pathways that are relevant for primary pulmonary vascular diseases may also spill over as a lesser pathway, may also be present in the HEFPEF patient, in the mitral valve patient or something. Mm. Um, and we have to be very careful not to lump them just with the other group one patients, say, well, here's drug A, B, and C, you know, go at it. Some of these patients, when they have more of these comorbidities, even though the pH may be severe, um, you can't treat them necessarily the same way. And you still have to recognize and optimize the underlying other issues, whether it's valve disease, HEFPEF, sleep apnea, and whatnot. Mm, okay. Now, you're in a bit of a unique position in that you're here at Tertiary Quaternary Referral Center for, you know, seeing patients with pulmonary hypertension that come to see you. But what what's the common stories that you generally see from patients that are coming to present to you? Yeah, I mean, our, uh, I mean patients with pulmonary hypertension, whether it's strictly from the pulmonary hypertension or it's because of the other underlying things that cause group 2 and group 3 disease, almost the universal complaint we have we hear is that they're short of breath, they, their exercise capacity is down. And then if it gets far enough along, then we start seeing right, signs of right-sided heart failure. So these are the scenarios and the presentations I think that patients generally present with. Mm -hmm. And then it's really a, an issue of how the medical system around them handles them. I mean, ideally, what we'd like to see is patients who have pulmonary hypertension, or at least um, uh, unexplained dyspnea, where pH may be a possibility, that they're carefully evaluated by their physicians, often involving pulmonologists, cardiologists, to look for all these other issues. I mean, when you look at the pH universe, 85% of patients are going to be group 2, 3, and some a little bit of 5. There's that thin 15% sliver that is either PAH or group 4, which is chronic thromboembolic disease, that really requires sort of special attention and mm -hmm. focused therapies. I mean, there are going to be some patients in that 85% who are sort of the more severe end of pH even though it's from other reasons like we talked about. Mm -hmm. And they may require special attention too because they've got significant right-sided heart failure. But the vast majority of patients need a good thorough workup to look for lung diseases, heart diseases, make sure they don't have um, blood clots. And when you um, find any of these underlying explanations, the focus should really be on that underlying problem. Are they, is there heart failure? Is there HEFPEF? adequately controlled? Are they on the proper bronchodilators? Are they on potentially antifibrotic therapies of interstitial lung disease? I mean, we can't lose sight of the fact that that's probably why they're short of breath more so than the pulmonary hypertension in most of those patients. Mm -hmm. So we definitely want, you know, like to see patients evaluated and worked up appropriately for those underlying problems. And I think the patients that deserve consideration for coming to an, a center like ours that, you know, has a lot of expertise and all the equipment and tools to evaluate these patients are the ones where you really think they're in that 15% where you can't explain it off to, you know, heart or lung, other heart or lung problems or, that patient, yes, they have these comorbidities, but gosh, their pH is really severe. I just, for instance, yesterday saw a gentleman 
who, you know, has COPD, has HFPF and AFib, and his local doctors have been working on him for a couple of years and doing everything appropriately, but he's just really dyspneic still and out of proportion. And there's clearly something abnormal about him, and he does mm-hmm. have, you know, moderate pulmonary hypertension. And that's the kind of patient that I think you know, is served best by being referred to a center, at least for a a second opinion and reevaluation to make sure that nothing is missed. And are they a candidate for maybe uh, specific PAH therapies for either an underlying missed PAH diagnosis, or perhaps they're one of these rare patients where they have a more exaggerated vascular response to those other conditions, and we might enroll them in a clinical trial or on rare occasion, try off-label therapy from the group one um, cache of drugs that are out there. Mm-hmm. But, okay. but you know, that shouldn't be something done routinely or on a willy-nilly basis out in the community. I think those are things really that should be done at centers who know how to manage those medicines. Sure. Okay. Now, I think we've done a good job of overviewing the broader approach to pulmonary hypertension, maybe narrowing down a bit more in that focus of that 15% of Mm -hmm. pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, But first, before we get there, I had a specific question regarding uh, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Sure. So uh, so you see a lot of pulmonary embolism fairly common. You know, one thought is that, um, and we don't always give these folks with thrombolytics, and one question I had is, you know, there's some evidence to help improve right heart function if you give thrombolytics at the time of like of a submassive PE. And I'm wondering if there's any information about thrombolytics and use for PE and the end results for developing CTEF, a CTEF later on. And that question may not be answered, but what are some thoughts? It's a good question. It's something I get asked not infrequently. And, you know, every time another thrombolytics article comes out, it seems like that invariably gets asked. Um... I, I, I think that at this point there is no data to support that practice of using thrombolysis um, in submassive PE simply for the treatment goal of preventing chronic thromboembolic disease. Hmm. Um, the decision to give thrombolytics, and I think, should squarely be on whether there's felt to be an acute need for the thrombolysis. In other words, a patient is sick, too tenuous to where the the, uh, need to uh, acutely lower the RV afterload is crucial for maintaining perfusion and their survival. Um, That's why massive PE with hemodynamic consequences, there's little, if any doubt, that people feel like they should get thrombolytics. And it's just for submassive PEs, it's more controversial because many of those patients will do just fine if you just support them through those first few hours. Mm. The problem is that, um, sorry to throw some numbers at you, but, you know, the incidence of chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension is probably no more than 2% of PE survivors. And that may even be a generous number. In fact, some of the best studies, including one from Italy from about 10 years ago, um, showed that it Maybe the, the numbers, if I recall, were as high as 4% by two years. Uh-huh. But I think the problem, or the, in hindsight, what people have appreciated is that the patients that were entered into studies like that had already um, a, a bias towards having uh, pulmonary hypertension. And it was more likely they had acute PE on top of previous pulmonary emboli, and there's already an element of chronicity there. Uh And so it's not, you know, the same population. And the reason I say that is because if you do the mental math of how many people in our country have pulmonary embolism, and you then apply, okay, 4% are going to get CTEF, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, in two years, there would be tens of thousands of patients with CTEF out there. And there just aren't that many. I mean, I'm sure we're missing some. Uh-huh. But I don't think we're anywhere close to that. So I think my point is that the incidence of CTEP is still pretty low, probably in the order of 1% to 2% of PE survivors. Okay. okay, So you have a condition that in years down the road, you know, 1% to 2% of patients may get. Well, if your goal is to prevent that, 
do you really want to expose patients to a treatment where the incidence of severe bleeding, including intracranial hemorrhage, may be as high as 2 to 3 percent um, in, in, in the span of the days of giving thrombolytics? Uh-huh. And, it, you know, when you think about it in those terms, do I want to take a chance of a 2 to 3 percent of having an intracranial hemorrhage to prevent something that I have a 1 to 2 percent chance of getting in the next 5 to 10 years? I think it's just the math doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's why I would caution anybody listening, please don't give thrombolytics, no matter what the burden of clot that you see on imaging is, simply if your goal is to prevent CTAF. That shouldn't be the reason of the trigger to pull uh, or the trigger to give thrombolytics. It should be that this patient is in shock, in his extremis, um, is, is a high risk of of uh, going into, you know, that dreaded spiral towards death in the setting of an acute PE. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to believe some of the studies and say even submassive PE with RV strain, you know, should get thrombolytics, you know, that's, I mean, I think it's debatable, but some people mm-hmm. do that. Uh, I tend to be more conservative and want harder uh, reasons or goals for why I'm giving thrombolytics uh, in, in those patients, but it definitely shouldn't be to prevent CTAF. So, sorry, I kind of got us off topic there, but no, I think it's a good difficult. question, uh, that, uh, people do ask. No, and it's come up a couple of times on the wards for me. So mm-hmm. no, I appreciate you elaborating on that. So now for the rest of the time, I want to focus primarily speaking about group one PAH. So in my reading prior to this, you know, there's maybe somewhat poorly understood, but there's a lot of environmental and genetic factors. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the etiologies that we know behind PAH and that complex interplay between environmental exposures like, you know, talking anorexigens, rapeseed oil, mm-hmm. and then underlying genetic factors as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier and, and I, you know, again, there's a lot we still don't understand about this disease. Um, it is still rare. Um, and we know a lot of potential exposures that are out there. Um, and now I think we're up to seven genes that have been linked, you know, some, mm. I mean, more popping up smaller in numbers and, and probably uh, significance than the granddaddy, which is, uh, the BMPR2 gene, bone morphogenetic protein receptor two that was discovered over 10 years ago. Um, and it's, um, a cell surface receptor uh, that helps modulate TGF-beta signaling on, uh, on uh, endothelial and smooth muscle cells of the lung. Um, and it's a pathway that's really critical for, uh, you know, the angiogenic development. Um, and, it, and it has expression in other parts of the body too, but as far as I'm aware of, it's only been linked to disease in, 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 uh, in the lung and the pulmonary circulation. Um, but we know that about 75 to 80 percent of people with heritable PAH are going to have a mutation in uh, BP, BMPR2. Mm-hmm. Um, there's several other less common um, genes. You know, we're talking probably at most one percent of the PAH population of the excuse me the heritable population that probably have these other uh, um, genes that can be affected. Um, but the crazy thing is, even in families with BMPR2, the penetrance is very low. Um, it's roughly about, oh, 10%. Um, so that one in 10 family members who have a BMPR2 mutation, as best as we know, go on to develop PAH. So that's why that it's, it's this classic kind of multi-hit, you know, process where, you know, genes play a role, but there's probably other pathways and potentially other triggers, environmental that we may not even know. Um, you know, again, so sort of other co-pathways that might have to be affected as well for BMPR to be expressed. Mm-hmm. Um, some have even speculated about certain infections. We know HIV is one of those triggers. There was a lot of interest in human herpes virus um, eight many years ago. Is there a, a viral or response to virus or infl- inflammatory response that mm-hmm. then unleashes BMPR2? We don't know. Um, really, but clearly it's, it's, uh, the penetrance is low and we think there's multiple hits that have to occur. And the same thing applies for other things too. 
a lot of people used anorexogen compounds back in the 90s, drugs like Fenfen and Redux and Pondamin, but only a small percentage of them went on to develop pulmonary arterial hypertension. Mm-hmm. And even now, the big toxin that we see is um, methamphetamines. That's overtaken everything else in our country, and it's a sliver of the meth. Uh, amphetamine user population that go on to develop this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's clearly more than just the exposure, and it undoubtedly has something to do with the vascular biology. Maybe, you know, some of the other main pathways that we know are, are involved in the pathogenesis, like the nitric oxide pathway or the endothelin pathway or the process cyclin pathway. There may be polymorphisms for uh, receptors or intracellular messengers that um, modulate those pathways. And depending on that polymorphism, maybe you're one of these people who has underexpression of nitric oxide in the lung, mm-hmm. and then you take a drug like, you know, uh, uh, use methamphetamine, and, you know, something snaps, and now you've got a PAH syndrome. Um, and, and that same idea could be applied as we were talking about earlier. Well, you have somebody with HEFPEP, but boy, they have really severe pulmonary hypertension, or they have mitral valve disease and they have really severe pulmonary hypertension, or they have COPD and emphysema, but out of proportion pulmonary hypertension. Again, it's something else, maybe a lesser pathway that we still need to uh, unlock to may explain why they go on to get it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, let's take, like, an example for a case. You know, I have someone come up to me with pulmonary hypertension. I've done the workup to to investigate other causes for their pulmonary hypertension. You know, their VQ scan looked for CTAV, echo, and verified, you know, on a cath. Did their sleep study and their PFTs as well. I'm determined, like, yeah, they true have group 1 pulmonary yeah. hypertension. What is then your stepwise approach and management for, medical management for those patients? Yeah, and, you know, we're blessed that even with a rare disease like PAH that we have so many therapies now. I think we're up to 14 FDA-approved therapies, which for a rare disease is just unheard of. Mm -hmm. And that's great. Patients have lots of options. But the challenge there becomes, well, as you said, what's the stepwise approach and what therapy and how do you, you know, begin to, you know, decide what therapy to put them on. Yeah. And I think I can tell you some more, you know, general principles now, but, you know, We've always thought that the more severe the presentation, the more aggressive we need to be, just because this is a lethal disease, and sometimes people can die within months of diagnosis, so we don't have a lot of time to waste. Uh, In general, the more um, severe uh, the disease, the more aggressive we're going to want to be. Another general principle nowadays is that we've known that this is a very difficult and refractory disease, and we've got many studies now that have shown that we call combination therapy, treating with multiple drugs, at least two, maybe three drugs early on or right off the bat is going to achieve more robust improvement and and longer term, uh, better longer term outcomes. Um, So most PAH patients nowadays, again, truly PAH patients, when they're diagnosed, will be started on uh, dual therapy, uh, two drugs. Now, how we decide, again, comes back to our initial evaluation. We have risk scores that we generate um, based on the data that we collect during the um, initial evaluation, things that uh, to inform us about uh, uh, well, first, just demographics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, men do poor, worse with this disease than women. Comorbidities like scleroderma and cirrhosis certainly make the risk greater. The pace and severity of their symptoms and how functionally impaired they are, the worse the function, the higher the functional class, I should say, the worse they are. Mm-hmm. The ex- Their exercise capacity, we usually use the six-minute walk test. You might use um, uh, a peak VO2 doing an exercise study, but the worse those numbers are, the worse their prognosis. And then really critical, though, is the state of their right ventricle. Mm-hmm. Um, the condition of the right ventricle um, drives our decision-making probably more than anything. Um, and if you think about it, that also answers or feeds into other things like how their exercise capacity is, how symptomatic they are, um, you know, whether they're having syncope or not. That's really all driven by right ventricular function. Mm. And 
We look at things like BNP values, hemodynamics, echo imaging parameters. So we look at a whole host of things and there are well uh, characterized, validated risk tools that we have, like the reveal risk score is one of the ones that was um, developed in our country. And then there are some more simplified European risk models. So we, we you know, um, take into account multiple pieces of data to sort of risk stratify our patients. And based on that risk stratification, then we can decide about therapy. Certainly patients who are in high risk category, where we think their chance of dying within the year may be as high as 10 or 20%. Those are patients that not only are we going to treat with combination therapy, but unless they're unable to do it or unwilling to do it, they are the patients who are going to go on our advanced therapies, which are parenteral prostacycline analogs, mm. drugs like epoprostenol, triprostenil in our country. And oftentimes the parenteral agent coupled with one or two oral agents and the other uh, classes of therapies is how we're going to hit them hard and aggressively. I would say the majority of our patients fall into a, a slightly less risky category of presentation, what we call intermediate risk. It's a pretty broad category, but in most cases, those are patients we would typically start with two oral medications, such as an endothelin receptor antagonist, um, plus a PD-5 inhibitor, a phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitor, or an endothelin receptor antagonist, and uh, uh, another class called the soluble guanylate cyclase stimulator, um, or a non-parenteral prostacycline analog. They are available now in inhaled mm -hmm. and oral formulations too. So, you know, that's four classes of therapies I just mentioned, ERAs, PD-5 inhibitors, SGC stimulators, and non-parenteral prostacyclines. And I think most of us for the intermediate risk patients would pluck two drugs from those four and start patients on therapy. Mm -hmm. If you truly have somebody that's low risk, maybe it was a incidental finding on an echo or a screening protocol for a scleroderma patient where you found the pH pretty early on, they're still quite functional, their RV is almost normal, those are patients that maybe you might treat with one drug. Mm -hmm. um, but even then, the threshold to treat with two drugs is really sort of been... Um, uh, driven in, uh, uh, drilled into our heads based on some of the trial data that we have. Gotcha. Okay. Very interesting. These patients can be tenuous, as I'm sure you know, and so they can come in an acute decompensated state. Wondering about other considerations to help optimize their function and management decisions to consider when you're seeing a patient acutely in the hospital in right ventricular failure. Um, are you specifically talking about uh, the sort of the prevalent patient who's been on therapy and has slipped into right heart failure or just even somebody, you know, sort of a new diagnosis that presents pretty bad right heart failure? Uh, I guess I was thinking more of the person who had been stable and then slipped yeah. into it. Yeah, good. Oh, sure. Well, first thing, we always want to know what tipped them over, you know, just like in any disease state, whether it's congestive heart failure or a COPD or um, we have our list of things that we think about as precipitors of right heart failure. Mm -hmm. um, first and foremost, we always want to make sure there's been no sort of gaps or in their uh, care or lapses in their medications. And that's often, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's becoming more and more common as patients are struggling to get medicines or access to therapies. Um, so that's always first, you know, mm -hmm. we want to make sure there isn't any gaps or lapse in their medications. You want to make sure there's no complications of the medications, specifically the patients on parenteral therapy. If there's a, a, a catheter infection or dislodgement and they aren't getting their medicine, um, you know, that can really sort of set uh, people into a, put people into a bad position. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are some other uh, less common things like uh, comorbidities like an acute pulmonary embolism. Um, uh, you know, endocrinopathies like thyroid uh, disease, uh, pregnancy, you know. Uh, these are also on our list of things in the differential uh, arrhythmias. I shouldn't forget about that. Mm -hmm. Atrial arrhythmias in particular can really set our patients back. So these are all some of the other things we think about. 
Um, and then there's always the concern of, um, you know, disease progression. I mean, you know, people are getting worse. And hopefully, and I'd like to think that when they're followed closely at a center like ours, that's less likely to just all of a sudden lead to hospitalization, that their disease is just progressing so rapidly. You know, that that is less often likely to occur. Um, but um, certainly patients who um, may not be getting the closest of care, um, they can be slipping at home and then they show up in bad right-sided heart failure. So we always want to go through um, that mental exercise of what's the trigger for the pulmonary, for the decompensation, excuse me, mm -hmm. and address whatever might be the inciting issue there. But in terms of managing these patients, um, you know, it, it comes down to a lot of basics, just like in managing left-sided heart failure. You know, you want to think about it in terms of preload, afterload, and contractility. I mean, what are things you can do to adjust either of those things? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, preload is a big thing. And, and, you know, a lot of times these patients are just really volume overloaded and they need a diuresis. And mm -hmm. we shouldn't be afraid to diurese them. Even when their blood pressure is a little soft, we may need help and support their blood pressure, but they need diuresis because mm -hmm. that right ventricle can get so big it tends to encroach upon the left ventricle. You don't, you don't fill the left ventricle and your cardiac output really goes down. And if you can properly diurese and the right ventricle decreases in volume, the left ventricle now can actually receive blood and, and, and you improve cardiac output that mm -hmm. way. So optimizing preload, um, uh, you know, the af RV afterward, unfortunately, we struggle there. Um, we don't have a lot of great drugs that are potent acute vasodilators to the lungs because mm -hmm. of the disease itself. But we certainly want to make sure we're making, we're properly utilizing their home PAH therapies and potentially even adding more PAH therapies. Sometimes it calls for uh, acute interventions like in the ICU, inhaled vasodilators like epoprostenol or nitric oxide mm -hmm. um, if you're in a really tough spot. Um, and then I think something that's real important that we rely heavily upon are inotropic agents like dobutamine and milrinone. Um, these are drugs that can really help tremendously when you have decompensated patients in the hospital and you're having, you're struggling to diurese them and improve organ perfusion, get them out of renal failure and decompress mm -hmm. their, uh, liver and right side. Um, so that's, you know, the careful introduction of these, you know, interventions is really critical. You obviously want to also avoid doing things that can harm these patients using indiscriminate vasodilators like calcium channel blockers and lowering their blood pressure. Um, you know, uh, intubation and mechanical ventilation can be very tough on these patients. So we try mm -hmm. to avoid doing that as much as possible. You know, anything that might injure their kidneys, nephrotoxic agents like non-steroidals or even ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers can be really tough on these patients and put them into kidney failure or, you know, really drop their GFR. And now they're not able to, you know, properly um, diurese. So you have to be careful to avoid things like that. Um, and then in the really extreme cases, you know, there are some interventions that we sometimes have to do, you know, uh, atrial septostomy. Um, is this procedure that our colleagues in cardiology can sometimes do in the cath lab where they create uh, essentially a, a PFO, a patent foramen ovale, um, so that they offload the right ventricle. They create a pop-off so that blood can mm -hmm. go from the right side directly to the left side, even though it's bypassing the lungs and you're delivering deoxygenated blood. But by enhancing delivery to the left side, you're increasing cardiac output. And if it's done properly, even with the lower saturation, oxygen delivery can actually go up because cardiac output goes up. Mm. And that'll help, you know, or perfuse the brain, so prevent syncope, perfuse the kidneys so you can uh, avoid, you know, getting into severe renal failure. And it can also help decompress uh, the right side to offload the liver and ascites and whatnot. And we do maybe one or two of those a year at our center. It's not often that you have to do it. Mm -hmm. um, ECMO support is something that, um, you know, is certainly an option in, in certain cases. But uh, I won't say too much about it except to say that, you know, patients with severe pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, they really need VA ECMO. Uh, they're not going to be able to, they won't benefit from VV ECMO really. So it's a much bigger deal. Um, 
but ECMO is one of those things that you never want to uh, start unless you have uh, a good exit strategy, a viable mm-hmm. exit strategy. And what I mean by that, you've got somebody that's waiting for a lung transplant or waiting to have endarterectomy surgery if they have CTAF, mm-hmm. um, or maybe a new patient who's treatment naive, and while you're trying to get them started and ramp up pH medications, they're really in trouble. You can support them for a little while with ECMO as you introduce medications that you know have a chance to really turn the disease around. It buys you time. Mm-hmm. You know, but taking the really advanced end-stage pH patient who has no viable long-term options and putting them on VA ECMO doesn't make a lot of sense because you're not going to be able to likely get them off VA ECMO. Yeah. So those are some of the more rare and heroic things that we sometimes do, uh, septostomy, ECMO, um, and, you know, of course, transplantation. Um, for patients that are eligible is, is certainly another possibility as well. Gotcha. Going back to inotropic support, I know there's a theoretical difference between dobutamine versus milrinone. Milrinone may have like some pulmonary vasculature like dilation. Has that borne out or is that a practice that you subscribe to? Yeah, I've heard that before too. And I don't, there certainly haven't been any great head to head studies that shown that I, I, I use both. I tend to prefer dobutamine more. Part of the problem is that a lot of our patients have renal insufficiency and milrinone mm-hmm. is challenging to use then. But I've had some good success with milrinone too. I really don't count on much of the pulmonary you know, vasodilation effect of that. It's mm-hmm. and, and maybe you see that in people who don't have such severe pulmonary hypertension. Remember, these patients' vasculature is very different than other people. But I think the main reason we resort to those drugs is for purely for the inotropic effect. And I okay. think both work similarly. Okay. Very good. We have talked about a lot of different things. And I think we've covered much, pretty much all the things that I wanted to talk about. Right. Where do uh, – maybe you can give us a glimpse for where the field is heading and what are the exciting things right now. Yeah. You know um, – We've come a long way since I started doing this in the early part of the, you know, the 2000s or the last decade. Um, I, I think, though, I will say I feel like we've hit a little bit of a, a lull or a staleness in that we, we haven't really developed any great new therapies or new pathways to a fact. Um, we're sort of stuck with the same three pathways that we're modulating with multiple drugs and a lot of second and third generation drugs. We still have questions answered, don't get me wrong, on, you know, the timing, you know, how aggressive should we be up front, when should we be switching, or when should we be adding therapies. There's still a lot to resolve, but, you know, we really still see patients do poorly with this disease, and sometimes people still succumb to the disease not too infrequently. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really need new therapies that work completely differently, um, that are not so much vasodilators, that really do something about trying to reverse remodel the vasculature, do something about the uh, cellular dysfunction, the bioenergetics. We also need drugs to support the right ventricle. And then, you know, there's a lot that's still uh, uncovered about the cellular uh, mishaps that are going on in these patients beyond just what I've described of the, you know, of the vascular um, remodeling and, and, and whatnot. There's there's a lot still in, in terms of mitochondrial dysfunction, mm-hmm. uh, disruption of the of the basic metabolic pathways, and so you know there's a lot to the disease that we still don't know. Um, there's a lot of interest in some exciting candidate drugs that work completely differently that are really focusing more um, at some of those basic pathways and mitochondrial dysfunction, Um, maybe drugs that work on the right ventricle and maybe even the peripheral musculature, peripheral skeletal muscle, even um, things that I think are also not normal in these patients that we haven't really looked at. Um, So I think it's really important for us to try to develop these drugs The biggest challenge or another big challenge we're having, though, is that we have so many therapies, much like in left heart failure, where until you saw the development and availability of um, 
is it uh, Sucubitril uh, in Tresto, you went through this long lull where there was nothing new coming along and left heart failure. And I think that's where we are in pulmonary hypertension. We have all these drugs, we have multiple pathways, and we know mm-hmm. we're combining drugs, and we've made a lot of inroads. But in order to get to the next level, you know, in order for us to have our in Tresto, it's going to take some time and real investment to find other therapies that can add to what we're already doing to make a difference in these patients. Hmm. Um, so I think that's really important. There's always this talk about personalized medicine. Um, I'm a little bit of a naysayer in that I, I would love for that to come about. I just don't know if we're going to have the, the, the number of patients um, to really understand and analyze who's going to respond to what drug better than others. And mm-hmm. we should really be using this drug in this patient, you know, uh, you know, unlike what we say are now doing in lung cancer and some other areas of medicine. It would be really nice to have that personalized medicine in pulmonary hypertension. I just don't know if we're going to have that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that getting back to what we talked about earlier, you know, there are a lot of people out there with pulmonary hypertension that is group two and group three. And, you know, there may be subsets of patients there that while we may not fix everything, we may still impact them positively in a subset of these patients by treating the pulmonary hypertension aspect of their disease. Mm. Who do we identify and what therapies? Because right now the PAH drugs have been kind of a bust in when we try to expand and look at group two and group three. There's been a renewed interest to study those other groups, mm-hmm. um, but there again, the clinical trials, we have to study the right patients and then pick the right therapy and have the right endpoints to show that treating the pH aspect makes sense and actually improves outcomes mm-hmm. and that patients either feel better, you know, they function better, or they live longer. Those are the three things that your audience needs to understand that certainly regulatory bodies When you're going to try a new therapy, you have to prove one of those three things. And so Mm -hmm. maybe there is a subset of patients with COPD or HFPEF that also have significant hypertension in the lungs that clearly makes them even sicker. Mm -hmm. But there's a drug now that maybe it treats the HFPEF and the pulmonary hypertension, or it treats the pulmonary hypertension without worsening the HFPEF that might actually help that patient. Mm -hmm. So we need to you know, we, those are areas we're also very interested in as well. Gotcha. Very cool. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for asking and your interest. And um, it's an exciting field. And I'm, uh, you know, I've been at it almost 20 years, and I still feel like there's a lot to learn and a lot to uh, uh, improve upon. Thank you for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This series is co-sponsored by MedPage Today and by the Division of Medical Education at Washington University in St. Louis School.